0: Somebody who's not in our world, why should they care about AI transparency and control? like what are the actual problems that that this stuff solves for
1: them? I remember when I first started working at and it was the most interesting thing to me because no one really knew what I did. They just knew I worked at well at Facebook at the time. And I used to get in Ubers and I would have an Uber driver say, well, my phone's listening to me, right? That's how you guys are so good at this." And, and what I have found is that in the absence of an explanation, people make up their own narrative. And that actually creates a really big problem for companies like Meta who are trying to be open and transparent about how our systems work. And, and so we, we find that that's one reason it's important is because as a brand, you need to be able to control what people actually believe. Um, I mean, I'm sure everybody has seen on Facebook friends copying and pasting that thing saying, hey, Meta does not have rights to use my photos and anything. And, you know, it's like these stories create themselves. Transparency solves that, right? Transparency is a way of saying, no, no, I'm going to tell you exactly how this thing works so you don't have to guess because we'll just, you know, uh, you know, tell you everything that you need to know. And if you have more questions, we'll let you dig deeper and deeper and deeper into it.
0: Welcome to AI Studios, where we discuss challenges, tips, and tricks for building AI products. I'm Natalia Barina, an AI product leader with experience building AI products at scale. Today, my guest is David Atkins, an engineering manager who leads a number of AI teams at Meta. David and I worked together for a number of years and jointly built the AI transparency and control team. David and I discussed detecting AI bias how to build AI products that are fair why you need your AI to be transparent and explainable and much more stay tuned notice you've been doing a lot of traveling lately um, I noticed you you like to eat well what's your favorite restaurant lately
1: a seafood restaurant in city Island called Sammy's um, it's just amazing you go there and you get this massive plate of of seafood and crabs like crab legs and it's become like my my go-to for when i just want to try something it's it's great it's amazing
0: so this is on the east coast i imagine somewhere where is it
1: yeah so it's just outside of new york city
0: i love seafood too so next time i am in that area we'll check it out tell us a little bit about yourself what's your life story i've had the distinct pleasure of working with you for a number of years but I would love to hear kind of how you think about your career um, and your, your career progression. Um, what's your story?
1: I have a really alternative and unique thing, and I don't recommend it to anyone. It's definitely an uphill battle, but um, you know I've I been, well, so I'm currently the senior, a senior engineering at Meta uh, working in responsible AI, and I've been doing that for the last three years. Um, but the path to get there was very interesting. So this is actually the first um, big tech company that I've worked for. And prior to joining there, I had a pretty good career in newspapers as a senior IT executive. I supported presses and IT services and product development in a wide variety of areas. Um, and I was originally trained as a, as a software engineer. So I, built, I worked in multi-currency payment processing. I built real estate and auto websites and magazine websites. Um, but what I think is maybe a little more unique is that I didn't actually go to college at first. Um, I just uh, I had children very young and, um, you know, and, and, and so I didn't go to college right away. And so I just kind of like inched along and worked my way up the, my ladder. And um, then when I was about 35, I decided, you know what? I should go back to school and get my degree. And so I went and got my bachelor's and uh, master's degree in computer science focused on AI. And it was more of just like I was interested in it and I wanted the degree, but it it led me into the role that I have at Meta. And so that was that was pretty great. Um,
0: I actually didn't know this about you, but I have to say one of my favorite things about working with you is that you are so incredibly pragmatic and that means that you're very customer focused. What are you, what are the teams that you're leading today?
1: My role is supporting both the methodologies and toolings teams. So I'm, I'm supporting both research and, and tooling development.
0: I'm going to throw a question at you, an organizational question, because I think your management skills are amazing. You're also one of the best engineering managers I worked with. Definitely one of the top few Um a lot of companies today are looking to adopt AI, but are not sure how to organize their teams around it. What are your thoughts on, on that? Now, having been through a couple of evolutions of how you organize people to work on on uh, AI problems.
1: So, you know, so the reason that we are structured the way that we are now is that you know, tooling teams have the same passion in mind, they have the same mindset. And so it doesn't matter what tool they build, they want to ensure that it's ready for scale, that it actually meets customers needs for internal users. Um, Methods teams, for example, they generally focus on research outcomes. I want to advance state of the art. I want to solve this fairness problem or I want to provide this level of interpretability in this model. And so, if you organize teams around around a, a similar outcome, you're generally going to find people are going to focus on that particular outcome, and then they're going to merge much better uh, together. So, our methods teams, and we actually have a waterfall method where our methods teams are developing methods, which then graduate into our tooling group, which they will implement inside tooling, and then the applications team will then use those tools and those methods to actually move. Um, move responsible outcomes in some way. So that was maybe the right way I think for us to structure it. Thinking about beyond responsible AI, I think the same thing applies. Outcomes could be, hey, I need data sets or I need models or I actually need like inference and built into product. And so if you align people around those outcomes, then I think that that's a pretty good way to structure things. Um, Of course, it depends on the size of the team uh, as well.
0: Yeah, it depends on the size of the team, the culture of the company, on the sort of products you, there's so many (laughs)
1: variables.
0: (laughs) What is AI bias and why is it important to think about?
1: I'm going to preface this by saying that, you know, know I'm glad you said bias, but we should just wrap up fairness and inclusion all into one in that sense. And, And basically the way that we look at this is that, you know, products should treat everyone fairly and they should work equally well for all people. And um, you know, and, and so in that sense, what we generally think about is, um, with, with if you build a model, you think about what's the error rate, right? And you just think about it globally. What we generally tend to think about is how do we break down that error rate by certain demographics and then measure it, because if all of your failure rate is in one demographic versus another, it can actually create bias and harms to that individual user. Um so when we think about AI bias and fairness, our our job our ultimate job is that we want to make sure that the product outcomes for the products that we're working on actually benefit all users equally. Or at least not sorry, not necessarily benefit. They work equally well for all people.
0: Which I think is a giant challenge for a company like Meta that has Billions of users globally. So we're talking about users in every country, people who speak every language imaginable. Um, It's mind boggling. I think, you know, one of the things I tell people about my time at Meta is that you could sneeze and impact millions of (laughs) people. (laughs) And while, you know, in the grand scale of total users of the company that doesn't seem like a big deal it really is a big deal there are whole countries there you know 8 10 million people or something it is very meaningful and impactful for those people so it's um i think th- what i'd love for our for anyone watching this to understand is how difficult this problem is <laughs> and how much work and thought goes into it how does one build a, a product that's fair that doesn't have bias that's inclusive how how is how do how should people approach this
1: problem there's trade offs that you have to make and so we generally tend to look at this as that fairness is a process and we want to try to continuously improve our process projects based on the air. I guess all of our products across, um, all these different demographics a little bit at a time. So we want to slowly continuously make process progress, but we're never done. We never truly have uh, what we would consider a fair model. It's more about have we put in as many, uh, mitigations as possible to try to avoid the, the problems that exist. Um, you know, and, and, are we aware of what some of the most important problems are um but yeah it's they there is no solution and so the process that we go through i think which is maybe a really interesting one to think about is that we take um we, we take really several different steps but it's through all levels of the machine learning life, life cycle so i think number one is you know like what are the goals of this product and are they consistent with providing people with fair value and treating them fairly um, and so this is basically, from inception of an idea, we wanna ensure that you're thinking about something as, as how is this fair for users. Um, then I think the second thing is, is when we really use our policy and legal partners to say, you know, does, does a policy prohibiting certain types of harmful behavior within the product, uh, does it adequately address the unique harms um, experienced by some subpopulations? And so we look at legal and policy to provide us guidance on things like that. Um, Next thing that we look at is, you know, of course, the the data sets themselves. Um, are people tasked with labeling these data sets uh, executing uh, the labeling instructions correctly? Um, have we actually measured and, and mitigated the labels to ensure that they are, are equally representative um, and that they are, you know, that they are representing all demographics fairly appropriately? Um, and appropriately? And then I think the final step, which is the one that we talk about most, is is really around, um, are these predictive models working equally well for all subpopulations? So can we take the error rate from this model, separate it out by the demographics that we're most concerned with, and then can we ensure that there is some uh, standard quality of, of service that's attached to each one of these outcomes? Um, and so so that's generally what it looks like for us in, in practice, but there, um, as I'm sure your listeners are going to say there's many different definitions for fairness, but it's generally the way that meta approaches the process. Because, as you mentioned, we are large and it's going to be very difficult to do something for everyone. So we do the best we can.
0: And what are some of your favorite examples of applying uh, all of these best practices for avoiding AI bias and fairness in meta products?
1: Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that we've done that, you know, are internal only I can't talk about. But I'd say that maybe the two that I'm uh, really proud of that we have taught that I can talk about, one is, is the portal smart camera, um, where we actually applied fairness mitigations to ensure that the camera was working equally well for all users. Um, you know, as any camera, you know, any app can tell you, you can do cutouts and set up backgrounds, and we want to make sure that works equally well for all skin tones. Um, you know, we also So we worked very closely with the Portal Smart Camera team to implement fairness mitigations to ensure that they that they didn't have those sort of bias issues. Um, so I think that was maybe one. Um, and then the other one, which I, I'm actually probably most proud of, is, is something that we just released a second version of earlier this year, which is the casual conversations data set, where we actually had people self-report information to us and we open sourced a data set that others can use um, uh, to help bake fairness into their existing applications and so the casual conversations data set was a huge effort within meta um, and and one of you know one of kind of a precursor to where we're focused on now which is how do we make sure that all AI is done uh, is is open and, and transparent and we're open sourcing a lot of things but casual conversations was one of the first examples we did that in responsibility
0: yeah those are huge project projects uh, for huge products. Um, What do you think is surprising about working on AI fairness?
1: Um, From somebody who didn't have a background in fairness, I think the hardest part of it is understanding what fairness means and in practice how fairness and equality, they're very different, or equality and equity are very different. And and so you have to make a trade off and it's because it's a very interesting optimization problem as opposed to just a, hey, we solved fairness. Um, and, and so I think that a lot of people who are not in that field don't realize that. They're like, oh, well, I just wanna make my model fair. Well, that's not exactly the easiest thing to do. Um, I think the other thing that was probably most eye-opening for me was realizing that working on fairness actually improves the overall product metrics. So if you start to realize, hey, I'm breaking down by demographics, I'm starting to see where my error rates are higher, it can actually be a really great tool for machine learning engineers to change their data set or upsample or downsample certain certain subsets of their data set, it actually improves the overall model accuracy over time. So working on fairness is not necessarily always a burden. It actually can benefit um, teams who are trying to improve accuracy.
0: What I found very surprising about it is that people don't think about it when building their AI products. <laughs> Majority of people in the industry think about it after the fact when it's already too late, when you have to put mitigations in place, and so you're really patching things up. And then the other one, which goes to the earlier point you were making, is that it's not really 100% solvable. It's really a matter of uh, thinking through the right trade-offs. And uh, it's not ever 100%, which which sort of jives very well with the predictive nature of AI. Anyway, I think people still haven't grokked the fact that AI is probabilistic. It's never going to be a hundred percent. That's the nature of it, as opposed to other technology and software, which is purely deterministic. Where you can kind of you set expectations, you know, you should meet them. Even though, even though that one is also <laughs> that one is also a little bit like. You can't always have 100% because systems get so complex over time. But yeah, these are all interesting and surprising things. Um, another question that I think is really interesting for people to think about and understand is what causes unfairness and bias? Why do we have it to begin with in in AI? I think it's
1: probably a safe assumption to say that we have it in, in ourselves, right? And And so yeah because we're the ones building models our inherent biases are going to to be taken into account as we're building things yeah a a great example of this is is you know the fact that um most of meta is is us-based they speak english and so it's a concerted effort that we have to take to say things like how are we going to release some model like no language left behind where we're saying we are actually going to go after languages outside of english um, and, and so I think that we all naturally have biases, and those those automatically just get inferred into into systems. Um, but I think it goes a little bit further as well. I think you know a lack of training data. Um, I, I, I think about this in the context of like misinformation. Um, you know, when we're trying to build a data set to classify misinformation, the amount of misinformation versus the real information is significantly disparate or different and so therefore it's much harder to figure out how to classify something like that when you have when you have a very small amount of training data um i i think that the other thing is you know i mean we have to realize what you just said, which is that machine learning systems are probabilistic. And because of that, they are trying to look for patterns and pattern recognition. And sometimes there's maybe inherent things that it can learn that are not necessarily meant to be learned. Like I I remember reading a story about how um, in reinforcement learning, a model was trained that was learned to play pong and it got so good because it realized that the starting point for the pong ball was different in odd levels versus even levels. And so it learned essentially two different trees to do whether it's on the it's in an odd level or an even level. Nobody would think of something like that when you're building the system. And so you need things like transparency, which I know we're going to talk about, to actually understand why models are doing what they're doing. And then that can help you to find potential unfairness things that maybe you didn't think about.
0: Yeah, I think this is a perfect example of the technology we built is really in our own image. We we have our own inherent biases and we tend to think of, well, what would work for me and how would I use this? And so uh, it's, it's really important to get more, uh, more people involved in creating technology. And I think we will. Uh, I've, I've seen... So much change in past 10 years, it's just so much easier than I I go back to, I just made a joke on Twitter about how I actually understand C++ pointers. <laughs> I understand all like memory leaks and all that stuff. Like nobody thinks about that anymore. It's so much easier to build. Uh, and I think AI is actually making it even easier for us to do a lot of these things uh, as well. Um what would you say to somebody who didn't think about AI bias bias and fairness? They ship their product, and oh no, now they're seeing problems crop up. Um, they're, you know, their brand's taking a hit. They're seeing some bad PR. Uh, there are some examples where it's uh, definitely not treating people equally, depending on who they are. Um, what are some mitigation strategy for already launched products?
1: This is this is my personal opinion more so than what I think uh, you know about meta meta stance but I think in general what I think is acknowledge the problem right I mean that's the the number one thing that I think people fail to to admit is it's like oh I want to sweep this under the rug and I've seen this throughout my entire career where it's like oh let's try to just let this go away working in media, I'll tell you that never works. The best approach is really just saying, let's admit that there's a problem and then let's talk about the steps that we're going to take to fix it. Um, being transparent about your intentions and acknowledging it is much better than trying to avoid the the overall problem. Um, I think, you know, I, one of the things that you and I talked about quite a bit is it, it's very interesting when you think that we have, you know, 70,000 employees at Meta, not one of them wakes up in in the morning and says, wow, I really want to do harm today. And, and so these things that happen, they end up happening by accident or by you know, user error or by human nature because we, we all make mistakes. And so I think that the biggest thing that we can all accept is that we're all human, we make mistakes. Now let's work together to try to fix this problem. And sometimes that might mean, hey, let me take this model down out of production and let me go back to what I had previously. This might say, hey, let me roll out a quick fix and maybe put in some some minor mitigations to help solve the, the basic problem why work on a larger issue. Um, but I think those are, you know, those are generally the trade-offs that you that you have. Um, and then I think the other example is is really just saying, you know, like um don't ever think it's too late, right? You can always do more, right? And we're learning that right now with large language models and fine tuning. We can always tune some more. We can always keep making some additional changes. And so I think that we should generally embrace that.
0: I think this is a perfect segue to talk about the AI transparency and control, which is the team that the two of us founded. I'm really proud of that work. <laughs> Um, but let's start it off with some basics. What is AI transparency and control? And I have my own version of it, but I'll, I'll let you let, let you go first.
1: <laughs> we haven't worked on mission and vision enough, and I hope we're fairly aligned in that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You know, but I, I guess the way I look at transparency and control is that um, you know we, we want to ensure that the right stakeholder has the right level of information that they need to make decisions about how about what this ai system is doing and and then also what are the ways that we can control this system so that we actually have some level of, of control over or some level of agency over the ai itself whether that's just a pure opt-out or whether it's a series of levers and switches that you change depends on the product use case but i think that i generally look at let's divide d- let's decide on the stakeholder and then let's build the right solution for that particular stakeholder
0: I 100% agree, so we are aligned. Uh, uh, There is one thing that I would add as context for all of this, which is that in a company that's very data-driven, like Meta, from the very beginning, the systems that are used to build AI are extremely complex uh, from infrastructure uh, standpoint, from services standpoint, from models standpoint. I think people don't realize that there are multiple models at play, multiple systems. Sometimes there's multiple platforms. And to me, the AI transparency, you know, like the, the one that seems like it would be easy is just to understand what all of these things are. Um, I think sometimes people tend to have a hard time <laughs> dealing with that kind of engineering complexity f- for one. Um, but I love your point that it really depends, like, what is, the, who's the stakeholder? Who's the user, the customer? Uh, for this particular problem, and then uh, shape the answer based on that. But I'm just thinking more from it, from the point of builder. I, I think people don't realize that there's, there is so much complexity there. Let's let's go to the next one, which is a uh, kind of a cousin term of AI transparency of control, which is AI explainability. Um, how do you think about this one? <laughs>
1: Definitely another another interesting space then and, and these terms along with interpretability get get interchanged so much Yeah, and and so I've generally thought of explainability as um, Well, I guess let me take both terms together. I've always thought of interpretability as this is the um, levers and cogs that actually happen inside of a model that we need to explain how it moves through in the process of inference explainability is maybe one step above that which is to say how do i take all of that information and how do i tailor it to whatever end user end user or non-expert stakeholder that we actually need to go to we're we we do not need to explain how ai systems work to ai experts we do have to explain how they work to end users to policymakers, to people like that
0: yeah no i again agree on that one and i think the key the key piece is exactly what you explained in the very beginning it depends on who is the user or the stakeholder? So if you're talking about the user, they want to know how the product, like, why did the product just do <laughs> give me this answer and do this thing? But I think on a model level, which is also something you touched on uh, for somebody who's building a model. Uh, I think this is a really interesting one with deep learning even people who create the models don't know how it works, right? Uh, so I think there, the explainability on a model level is is really interesting. Uh, we can get into that one. We, I know we both have a product that we <laughs> it's called Captum which just let the cat out of the bag. It's, people use Captum for that one. If you need to know how your AI model works, go use Captum, the best PyTorch library in the world for explainability and interpretability, of which david knows everything about somebody who's not in our world why should they care about ai transparency and control like what are the actual problems that that this stuff solves for them
1: I remember when i first started working at and it was the most interesting thing to me because no one really knew what i did they just knew i worked at well at facebook at the time and I used to get in Ubers and I would have an Uber driver say, well, my phone's listening to me, right? That's how you guys are so good at this. And and what I have found is that in the absence of an explanation, people make up their own narrative. And that actually creates a really big problem for companies like Meta who are trying to be open and transparent about how our systems work. And, and so, we, we find that that's one reason it's important is because as a brand, you need to be able to control what people actually believe. Um, I mean, I'm sure everybody has seen on Facebook, friends copying and pasting that thing saying, hey, Meta does not have rights to use my photos in anything. And, you know, it's like these stories create themselves. Transparency solves that, right? Transparency is a way of saying, no, no, I'm gonna tell you exactly how this thing works so you don't have to guess because we'll just you know, uh, you know, know, tell you everything that you need to know. And if you have more questions, we'll let you dig deeper and deeper and deeper into it. So I think maybe that's one really unique use case about like explainability. And then I think the other one, which we use quite often is actually is a debugging tool. So I mentioned how transparency kind of fits all different areas transparency can be used as a tool for fairness it can be used as a tool for robustness if you can explain how a model works you can then adversarial red team against those things to try to break the system if you understand how the system works you can identify the most important features in a model and then you can say well it looks like gender is the top of my list for feature importance i think that i might have some level of bias in here and i need to check that um, so I think that using it as a debugging tool or using it to enable other responsibility use cases is is really critical and so so those are the two that I have generally anchored anchored on with our team on when it comes to transparency
0: yeah i I completely agree uh again, we're aligned, but we' worked for a long time. I thought about this deeply. I have my own unique take on this one, which is that kind of going back to what we talked about earlier, AI is probabilistic. So it's always going to mess up somewhere, right? And when it messes up, if you can explain it, people are willing to be a lot more forgiving. And I'll give an example from psychology. There was a an experiment around, you know, human influence and in psychology, where um, what they did is they had people standing in the line, and they had somebody who wanted to cut the line. When that person cut the line, everybody would get angry. But if the person said, "Oh, I'm about to be late for my flight," or you know, "I have a sick kid," if they gave a good, solid explanation, everybody was willing to uh, be flexible and forgiving and let them. <laughs> Cut the line. So I feel like this is uh, a really powerful tool for people who are building AI to really protect their their reputation, their brand, and better communicate with their users. Because again, these systems are so complex and unpredictable, and that's the nature of the beast. Um, the other one, which I think is something that's, you know, since we work together, has blossomed is this AI doomer narrative, right? Like AI is going to take over the world. We're going to be enslaved by it. But what if, what if we have all of the explainability tools and we could look inside the AI, we will know exactly what it wants to do, right? So I, I think of all of the transparency tools is sort of, um, like a psychiatrist for the AI it's a way to look inside inside the black box and uh, the, the I, you know i think again we're very early in understanding explainability transparency all these things but i think increasingly they'll become more and more important as as the way that we build AI advances. So.
1: The story is so true. I mean, I used to tell people that I could burn the building down as long as I communicated it effectively. And it was, you know, I mean, obviously not true. But at the same time, it's like yeah, absolutely transparency is really critical for so many use cases. So why not AI as well? What
0: do you think is surprising about working on AI transparency?
1: My my take on on what's difficult about transparency is actually that it's very hard to justify doing it. Right? It's really easy in hindsight to look back and say, "Wow, we should have been transparent about that thing. Um, this would have saved us so many problems." Um, I, I I take a you know I think about some of the past things that we did around like you know facial recognition or around you know like the different things that we've talked about with ads or Cambridge Analytica even. Um, You know, I think about that and I'm like, it's very easy if we would have gone back and said, hey, transparency could have been a solution to help mitigate this particular problem, but it's very hard to invest in it proactively and say, hey, I want you to do this now in case if something comes up later, you know, in case if in the debugging case, hey, something happens with our model and it would have been nice if we had interpretability built into it and now we can't go backwards and add it in later.
0: Yeah and I think this goes goes to the development of AI systems it's really still the wild west and there aren't any uh, the standards the tools I mean especially with all the crazy with large language models this is really the case like the whole ecosystem of support tools is just blossoming but it's chaos um I think for me the surprising thing that I didn't realize before working on this is that people use so many different platforms and tools for developing their AI, and it's very fragmented. Um, And in order to make the really big impact, it's you need a very consistent central platform and system. And then it then it's much easier. But just generally industry wide, again, the platforms and tools for building AI are so fragmented and all over the place. Let's talk about AI System Cards, maybe.
1: (laughs) Yeah, System system Cards is a really interesting um, project. And I mean, you and I worked on this for a couple of years together. And then um, just this actually, you know, just this past June, we had an amazing accomplishment. But um, one of the things that we found is that you know, going back to the example I said of people listening to our phones, like this was always a very common misconception. People wanted to understand how the algorithm works and what happens in in the actual systems. And so um, over the course of a couple of years of of research and user research and uh, design iterations and policy discussions, I think we prototyped this idea of a system card, which is to say, one step further than what like model cards currently do where model cards explain a model. But most end users, most most regulators, most people who are interested in meta don't care about how that model works. They care about how does that model work in a conglomerate of models for systems. So inside of Facebook we have you know 70 or 80 different systems that can potentially ultimately come together to provide a prediction of the ranking of, of content. And so system cards was a way of doing that where we wanted to target external stakeholders and actually explain what are the most important signals that go into the system? How can you control them? How can you opt out and turn them on? Um, and in general, can you play with it and maybe understand how, uh, maybe, maybe provide a little bit more education to users to say, yeah, it's not as, as, it's not as complex as everyone thinks, but at the same time, it's probably more complex just because of the amount of information that we have coming into it. And uh, you know, and System Cards was a, a, a really great thing. I mentioned over, I think it was two and a half years of research went into it. But then when we released our first one uh, last January for Instagram feed, we got amazing feedback on it that it was very helpful. Yeah. And so the company took that commitment to heart and we said, let's launch more. And so we launched uh, another one for social commerce. Um, and then in June of this year we actually announced system cards for uh, all of our top 24 recommender systems across the entire company um, and so we spent a, a good a good nearly year developing a standard methodology for generating the main parameters of these systems going back to what you mentioned about the the ecosystem being so disparate and and. and um, that's true, even at a company like Meta, where we have different teams working on different infra tools to be able to build models. So we had to build this standardized approach for saying how do we explain this system, how what control options do we exist, and so we met with more than hundred different teams across these areas, helped to build this this methodology, and then releasing them. And, and so it was an absolutely amazing effort that that consists of more than 300 people working across uh, this effort for for more than a year. Or so.
0: Yeah, no. Incredible. I'm really proud of proud of that work. It,
1: was without saying, it would have never existed without you, though, Natalia. So you oh, drove the vision and you know sold it to so many people. And so, I mean, to see all that work, even, you know, more than a year after you left, it's like, yeah, this is amazing.
0: And I think, you know, going back to that the question, I, I love asking the question of what's surprising. What's surprising about AI system cards is, what, is that they were adopted by OpenAI. And so they had them for ChatGPT and Dali as well. And everyone go go read those documents if you want to know how these products work. Um, but I think it's just invaluable for, you know, people who have the curiosity and the need to understand how how uh, all of the AI works, what's underneath the hood. Um yeah, no that, incredible. Yeah. Thank you, David, for all the amazing work. <laughs> It was just so much fun.
1: <laughs> we to sit here and talk about it where there were so many other people. There were so
0: many people. Yeah, them. No. The the privacy, the policy team was incredible. Shout out to design. Everyone that worked on it. I'm not going to name specific people because like you said, there were so many people who worked on it. Um, I'm really, really proud of that. Meta has launched Llama, which is making big waves in the industry and the AI world. And uh, you have had a a hand in that as well. Um, Tell us a little bit about it. I am particularly interested in the responsible AI piece of it, of course.
1: I believe it was last month now, in July, we announced Llama 2 being released as an open source. And... Um, and this to me was a really interesting thing because we had released llama before but it was only for research use cases but llama 2 has the additional add-on to it where it's now available for commercial use as well and so we released um so both um, pre-trained and fine-tuned versions of the model that anybody can download for free and then they can use them to build their own chatbot or fine-tune their own chatbot for their own use case and this was a thing that responsible AI was was you know heavily involved in just to try to make sure that we because we were doing this and this is the first time that we've done anything of this scale, um, we wanted to ensure that we thought very methodically about about responsibility and bake it in from the beginning. And so you know we can certainly talk about all the different responsible AI pieces to it, but we had a team of people who were working on safety mitigations and who were working on red teaming the product. Uh, we had a, a team of people who were focused on how do we provide transparency. We built a model card that shipped with this. Um, we had our a team that wrote a responsible AI use guide that, that talks about the responsible use of large language models and how to actually implement them. Um, and and so there was uh, this was I think one of the one of the largest things that we've done where I think responsibility was baked in from the very beginning. Um, and and it I think it really. Shows when you see all of the the efforts that we went through to try to ensure the safety of the system,
0: yeah, so a lot of people in various industries um, are eager to start adopting large language models um, but there's also a lot of reluctance because. They want to feel comfortable around the risks uh, and, and mitigating the risks uh, before releasing any of this into production. Um, I think famously, you know, easy to build a prototype, but actually building a product is a whole, whole another, another thing. Um, what would you say to people who are curious about how would you de-risk your large language model? What do you do?
1: It depends on the investment that you have to put into this, people-wise, but. Um, in some recent talks I've given, one thing I said is that I generally tend to look at the current state of maturity as that large language models are great as augmentation tools. Uh, they help with human augmentation, with performance, with, with um, efficiency. They, they can do a lot of different things. Um, when you look at them as a replacement tool, meaning like I want to replace an experience with a large language model, you have to go into it knowing that there are risks that have not been solved yet. The hallucination problem is is a great example where, you know, the large language models are trained to give you a prediction of what you want to hear. And that is not necessarily the right answer in a lot of cases. Um, So what I generally would tend to recommend is this goes back to transparency. Be transparent when you're using a large language model. Hey, errors can cause can can happen. This is not, you know, always check for accuracy. Um, you know, and, and so I think that that's maybe the first step is to, is to ensure that you are, you recognize what you're building with. You are not building it. You are not working with a smart genius. You're working with something that was trained on data and it does have limitations because it's, it's limited to the data it was trained on. Um, I think the other thing, and this kind of goes, I'm pulling straight from like the responsible use guide, but I think, um, you know, one thing to think about is what is the use case that you want to use it for? Think that through in, in a very in-depth way and then be almost um, uh, going, going back to the pragmatic side of things. Think of everything that can go wrong with this. Think about all of the things that, think about the problem you're solving, but then think about all the other problems that it could create. And, and so go into this knowing that you're using a, a system that is probabilistic, not gonna give you a guaranteed outcome the exact same input can provide different outputs. <laughs> and, and, and so there's, there's not necessarily any guarantees that you're being trained on, on accurate, or that you're being given accurate information.
0: My hot take is I I don't think hallucinations are solvable. But
1: I don't think that they are solvable today. Um, you know, I mean, who knows what the future research will, will come out of this. Um, and there are lots of ways that you can mitigate hallucinations. Yeah. It, it, may so it, may just, yeah. it, it may not
0: matter. It may not matter if you can add the source, then that, that may be good enough.
1: Yeah. Or um, if you can filter out outputs that are, you know, based against some other data or something like that. Double checking. I mean, this like in in news, one of the things that you were taught is this: trust but verify, right? Um, yep. So think we have to think in that terms. Like, there's definitely ways to validate the information that you're actually getting.
0: Yep. Yep. So, David, you're in a very unique position because you get to think both about products at enormous scale, at extreme scale, with billions of users, but also you're very close to some of the best AI researchers in the world. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about AI is that a lot of the research has been well out uh, ahead of production, right? And so there's been... You almost have to bridge those two worlds the worlds of of people who build product for users and the world of people who are world-class researchers how do you do research to production and uh, you know what are some tips you might give to somebody to to make that effective because i think there's tremendous business opportunity for any entrepreneurs who are or, or startup founders who are listening you know go check out all the latest ai research figure out how you can productize it. But David, you have been in this unique position where you do it all the time in your job with some of the best people at, at extreme scale. So what would you, what, what would your advice be for,
1: for the world? I I love my job. It's so much fun because you get to actually have somebody hand you a research paper and then you say, how can this actually work in a real world scenario? And so that's, I think, one of my favorite parts about my role. Um, But I I think that the challenge that we run into is that most research is done on very small data sets in very controlled environments. And so one of the biggest challenges that we have faced in trying to do this is to think, now how do we apply this at scale? Uh, An amazing example of this is is actually going back to transparency in the work we did for ads, um, where doing interpretability and feature importance on a toy model is fairly lightweight. But when you try to deploy it at scale for a system that might have hundreds or thousands of features, and you wanna do it in near real time, there is a very big challenge with trying to productionize existing research and actually meet the expectations. And so a lot of what our team does is, is tries to think in terms of that. Um, we do do some novel research, but most of what we've been thinking about on like the tooling side of it is how do we take that novel research and adapt it to other use cases using things like sampling strategies, or can we optimize for certain use cases? So in the case of ads, what we did is we actually built a a surrogate model that uh, stood alongside the ad system to be able to make it so that we could do this inference in near real time. And we built an entire infrastructure around being able to do that so that every single ad can tell you what are the top signals that is that were used in displaying that particular ad, and that was. nearly two years worth of work. And I don't think we're done yet. Um, and I think that, you know, I mean, it, that's how long this type of work can take. But it's just amazing to see an idea that uh, we came from academia and see you actually take it all the way to the scale to a billion users. It's, it's one of the most rewarding things about, about my job.
0: Yeah, no, I, I remember that project. I was there in the earlier stages and it was just very fascinating. And Again, going back to things that are surprising, it's just the complexity of the ads platform and infrastructure and the whole machinery behind the scenes. It's, um, it's, the complexity is, is incredible. David, thank you so much. Um, I guess we'll so con- con- conclude on a cu- couple of things. Uh, what are you excited about? Just you know, generally, uh, it could be anything. And what's next for you?
1: Oh, let's see. So, I mean, what I'm really excited about is is large language models and their application, and then also how do we do things responsibly. Um, You know, we're already seeing use cases out in the world where people are using large language models as classifiers. We're already seeing places where people have ideas about how we can do this for recommendation systems. And so as this technology gets more and more advanced, it opens up a whole new set of responsibility challenges because we can't necessarily, when it comes, let's take transparency as a great example. We can't necessarily run feature importance against a large language model because there's only one feature. It's just one block of text input. So we have to invent all these new ways of doing what we've been doing for responsible AI um, in new areas. So that's, that to me is I think what I'm most interested and fascinated by these days is how, how generative AI is gonna change the landscape Not just for Responsible AI, but Responsible AI specifically in my role. But even beyond that, all the new use cases that people are finding. I've been giving talks recently at Chambers of Commerce. And the ideas that come from people who have no AI background are just amazing to me. And I think that once you start to see people productionizing these use cases, you're going to see a a massive seismic shift in, in industry in general, where AI will have so many different new uses that we aren't even thinking about today
0: yeah no a very exciting time very exciting time (laughs) david thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you and talking about all of our work together and seeing how you've taken everything forward um thank you so much thank
1: you